What does it mean to take care of yourself? Flamingo believes that it's the freedom to choose what you would like to do with your body. Whether you shave the hair on your armpits, your upper lip, your feet, your toes, your bikini line, when it comes to body hair removal, Flamingo knows that every routine is different. Flamingo designs hair removal products with your body in mind so you can feel the most you in your own skin. Flamingo razors combine thoughtful design with years of customer feedback for a really close, really comfortable shave for your whole body. They feature five ultra-thin blades, glide strips with aloe and shea butter to help protect your skin from irritation, an ergonomic handle with no slip grip, and a flexible hinge that hugs every curve, all at a great price. Plus, they have other great hair removal products from wax strips to dermaplane razors, so you can find the tool that works best for you. Join the millions who have tried Flamingo by heading to shopflamingo.com forward slash the mic and enjoy a special discount just for our listeners. everyone and welcome from NYC by Design. This is The Mike, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Melman. From projects to products, inspirations and more, join us each episode as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. On this episode of The Mike, we're recording in front of a live audience here at the Salem Gallery in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City during New York Design Week. I'm thrilled to be joined today by three extraordinary women to explore what it means to build a brand and design products specifically for women, their bodies, and their choices. Please join me in welcoming Natasha Jen, a world-renowned and award-winning designer, thinker, educator, and partner at Pentagram's New York City office. She is joined by Erica Eden, a strategist, the founder of the 4B Collective, and previously the Global Design Director of Design Innovation at PepsiCo. And Cher Russo, the Creative Director at Flamingo, with previous lead creative roles at Glossier and Estee Lauder. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. So the first thing I want to ask you about is the title of this panel discussion building brands and products for women. I'm wondering if you think that there has ever been a conversation about creating a panel titled Building Brands and Products for Men. Just a yes or no answer would suffice. Not, not, not in my memory. <laughs> no, absolutely not. You know, I, I'm going to be interviewing Gloria Steinem tomorrow. And in my research, I read an interview where someone asked her why there wasn't an international men's day or month. And she responded without missing a beat by saying, well, every day and every month is international men's month. So I'm thinking that perhaps the reason that there hasn't been a panel like this is because we kind of design default to men. Does it bother you that we have to have panel discussions like this? I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, we're not there yet, and that's why we're still talking about it. We started talking about design for women 
in the 50s, right? In the 60s, 70s, 80s, I've been working on this topic for 20 years. It's exciting to learn about. It's, for me, an opportunity to get better, to learn more, and educate the global design community on how to get smarter. But I mean, is it sad? It's just kind of, it is what it is, you know? Like, this is the world we live in, and if you don't just go out and find a way to turn something that's negative into a positive for you, for your, in your career, in your life, then you're kind of doing it wrong. So for me, there's always a win. I would echo that. I think it's really important to have these conversations because I think we also need to feel comfortable outside of spaces like these talking about them. I think what would be amazing is if we have panels like this and there's way more male representation but I also think it's important for us, like I said, to have the vocabulary to be able to speak about why there's still inequity and inequality and why we need to create more progress and change. Well, I think that conversations like this are also an opportunity to advance the conversations even more because I, I find a lot of this sort of gender-based conversations very binary. And I think that we have to enter a space where, you know, thinking on gender orientation, equality, you know, in a kind of more nuanced way. And I think that more sort of on a societal basis rather than just like individualist kind of basis. And I think conversations like this are always very helpful. Yeah. Consumers have been led to believe that most design is gender neutral. And I'm not, not so sure that they would that I should say that they were led to believe. I think there's just this sense that things should be gender neutral. But in reality, most products are designed with men in mind. Women will often buy products that are specifically targeted to men, but men will never buy products that are specifically targeted to women. Why is that? I, it before That wasn't going to be a question, but since you seem so emphatic about it, I'm just wondering why is that? Men today are not culturally allowed. Mainstream American men are not allowed to express their femininity. Adult men, at least. I think it's changing fast. But there is a negative reaction that they get from certain categories. I think skincare is one that is exploding for men, right? Like, that's okay. But, you know, I have three boys at home. Right. If I in they're little, they are in elementary school and they know already what's for them and what is absolutely not for them. And they will be pissed off if I recommend something that's for girls. And it's visceral. And I certainly didn't teach them. Dad didn't teach them. Where are they learning this? Where are they learning it? Do you know? I, OK, so here's what I think. I, I've, been, I've been living in the city for a very long time. I just moved to suburbia and in suburbia, there's this thing called older brothers. <laughs> and I think it comes from the, the older brothers and adult men that put this on the young kids because it is, it's just so painfully obvious. There's just never a, a day where they would feel comfortable in a product that, that isn't explicitly marketed to like boys. I think there's also an education factor too. I think about growing up and being in health class and not knowing a damn thing about my period, about my body. I knew what a wet dream was at the age of like 11 or 12 because we were told that in class what that was. But like, I think women, girls, young girls growing up are sort of told like they can't speak about their bodies and what's happening. And you see that even today politically, what's going on with the, you know, banning of even talking about periods. 
So I think there's always like, we're off to a head start of being, well, a head start of being behind, especially when you think about how we're raising both girls and, and boys. But I also want to echo your point of looking at this world as binary. It's, we, start, we need to start thinking beyond that as well, because also there's a lot of in between and sort of educating ourselves on the idea of being cis, being, you know, gender non-binary and how that affects you in this world too, and how the design of the world currently fails that community. I want to get back though to some of the, the ideas that you might have about why. So for example, I want to talk very specifically about shaving in a little while, but one thing that I learned when I was working for years and years with Gillette before Venus came out, Venus the Razor, they talked about, the executives there would talk about how men would always buy male-oriented products, the Mach 3s and so forth. Women would also buy the male-oriented products, but men would not ever buy a Venus or any of the other female brands that they had pre-Venus. And I was thinking about that today and thinking about how something even as innocuous as what we might call a boyfriend sweater. There's no equivalent. Boys don't get to wear the girlfriend sweater. And so I'm wondering why or how this hierarchy, if, if you have any information or knowledge about why that is. Women will buy male products and use them, but men won't buy female-oriented products. I would just love to do a survey, like just put it out in the world. I think it's a question to men. You see, here's the thing, right? Like, I'm a female, yeah, and I identify myself as, as a woman. I actually realized that I know very little about how this other think or feel. I mean, I'm married, you know, I'm, I've been with my husband for 20 <laughs> something years, right? But I realized that I actually don't know much about psychologically what's going on over there. But then, you know, the irony is that our history is primarily men's history, mm -hmm. right? Let's just admit it. Yeah. Empires were built by men. Cities were built by men. Wars were waged by men. Soldiers were all men, still, for the most part, right? So it's a history that it's just, that's what we live through as a, as a civilization. You can't deny that, right? But what's also interesting is that you look at the construct right now, all the design languages, once we kind of really get into it and try to actually understand it through either the lens of gender. Okay, so for example, why walls are straight? Why tables are with sharp edges? And does femininity mean roundness? Does it mean more gentleness to it? So once we start thinking in those terms, you realize that we're actually very limited in the thinking and vocabulary on this sort of very, very deep subject matter. Yeah. yeah. I think I, it's also the codes that were the codes that yeah. were born into like the pink versus blue growing up like marketing does a shit job like advertising you think about men are it's like you want to be strong you want to be tough what is equated with that like being outside getting your you know knees skinned up where the girls are told you have to buy easy bake oven and all this and all it's stuff that's like yeah we talk about that from the 50s 40s 30s whatever but it's still inherent 
today, it still exists. I, I think we're making progress, but I don't think we're out of it. I mean, the one thing that concerns me about having conversations about women-centered design is that we need to get past that. We're not there yet, but now we need to be talking about non-binary-centered right. design. And if we haven't even been able to figure out how to deal with women-centered right. design, how do we even move into the future? That's the yeah. biggest part that concerns me about these types of conversations. But one thing so about, backwards. about that category or other categories like it is there's two sides of it, right? Like, aren't we lucky that we get to explore? Mm. I can be a tomboy. I can, I can go the next morning and be something totally different, right? Like, that's incredible freedom that women in this country have right now. And some men have it, but most don't. But it's also, like you're saying, like, it's the default is different for men. So if you look at men's communication, it's about efficacy. It's about strength and power. And if I'm in the mood for that that day, I am entitled to go choose that. But if you look at the, the, what's communicating in brands unlike Flamingo, it's floral, it's delicate, it's gentle. Those, I don't think, are socially acceptable by and large by mainstream men. As I was coming up through the years in my design career, especially in the earlier days in branding, I was one of very few senior women back in the day. I've been, it's been 40 years for me in this business. And people would ask me, especially in the 90s and into the early 2000s, oh, do you think you've been stymied by, by being a woman? Has it held you back in any way? And in fact, I would have no way of knowing, mostly because I, I've never considered that reason a viable reason. I always thought that if I didn't get something, which there were many, 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 many times where that occurred, it was just because I wasn't good enough, not Debbie Millman female wasn't good enough. It was just whatever it was that I brought to the table. It never, ever occurred to me until people started asking, does being a female have something to do with it? So I'm wondering, as we're talking about this specific topic, was there a moment as designers and as practitioners and as thinkers where you realized Huh. The world really wasn't designed with me in mind. And, and do you remember that moment? Yeah, my, my childhood, because I grew up queer. Like, I grew up not knowing my identity and feeling like I didn't align with one or the other, that I didn't fit in with what, you know, advertising and what the world was telling me how I should be. And I hid that, and it was, I felt very othered in that capacity. And this is my own personal experience. I can't speak for anyone else. And so I feel like in that capacity, really, like, that's when I felt like, I don't know what is or isn't for me. And I think a really great example is, I'm going to jump ahead of it, is actually bathrooms, public restrooms is mm -hmm. like a huge bane of my existence for some, you know, just being able to go in and feel comfortable. I've been called out multiple times for people thinking that I'm male because I'm masculine presenting. But then on the flip side, Based on what your anecdote there is like, I've been asked if being mask presenting has helped me in my career because I'm non-threatening. And I've had to actually think about that too. It's been quite a journey for me to think about like where I was and what I've had to overcome and where I'm at now. And, and is it a benefit for me? It's so interesting because 
I know many women that are really attractive that have been accused of being able to get ahead because they're more attractive. Yeah. So there's always seems to be a reason for a success or a failure that has to do with gender if you're female presenting or of the female gender. It's not just merit. Like, right. You're just really fucking good at your job. <laughs> what about that? You know, it, I, I feel like you were going to say something that. I think it's a great question. And, you know, I asked myself that question. Did I ever have a moment where I, I'm like, hmm, the world wasn't designed for me? Okay, maybe I can reframe that question and answer it a little bit differently. I have to say that I actually didn't realize that I deserved to have different things until like pretty late stage in my life. I grew up in Taiwan and I came here, I, I came to the States when, when I was 22. Okay, so I, it was pretty late, right? But here in America, I just realized that, wow, there are so many options and there are so many great options for women. That, you see, that actually transcends just gender because that's actually a cultural change too, right? And that moment was a moment when I realized that, oh, wow things could actually be designed for me more specifically. And I think that in the last several years, you know, with brands like Flamingo and many other brands that are very specific about women's needs, I began to actually realize that, oh yeah, there can be more great things designed for me. Yeah, I just didn't think about them before. Yeah, and there will be great, more great things coming, but. I think that not just things themselves, right? I think that what we really need is to answer this layer that is services. Yeah, I mean, objects, right, are tangible, but I think that the service layer for women is profoundly missing right now in so many ways, in so many ways. And I think that's, a, that's an opportunity area. That's also an in, in innovation area. I mean, you look at Western medicine, and how that's sort of like, when you talk about service and how women are going to fertility clinics, how are those spaces designed? Are they designed for women that are, you know, having issues or have just had a miscarriage or something like just really thinking through a, a, a woman's experience and, and designing a space for her? I think Western medicine in general, you think about going to the gynecologist and like all the tools used on you and like the idea of a mammogram scares the shit out of me, like squeezing your boob as tight as possible. Like, is that truly the best way of screening? Like, have we ever even rethought that? Like all of the tools, like, I think that's something that, that we, I know, does anyone just stop and think about how do we innovate on what is technically designed for women that has been designed by men and just actually create experiences that are for women's needs. I think the, the interesting thing for me is, is the title of this talk, which is women-centered design. Like for me, there's, there's two different ways to take it, right? Like there's products designed explicitly and obviously for women, right? The, um, the mammogram machine, right? Like, I get that. There's opportunities for improvement, but what about spaces that are for everyone, but over-index in female consumers, right? If you're working in consumer goods, which I have for many, many years, those products are made and influenced by up to like 90% of women. And the decision makers in those companies are like 80% men, right? Like there's a disconnect there. For me, that's interesting. Like. In finance, for example, I was talking to my friend who's been working in this space for a long time, and she was talking about the emergence of femme finance and how cringy it is. But like maybe there's, it's okay to have a safe space 
for women to explore learning about finances. Maybe not for me. I don't want that. That makes me uncomfortable. I just want my neutral experience to be more targeted to me as someone who's learning. And in, in the food preparation space, I used to work at PepsiCo. Women are still responsible to put food on the table in this country. The burden falls on women. And so innovation in that space, like daily harvest, frozen foods, like that, that gets dinner on the table very quickly, that's mind blowing. That they can improve the everyday life of real women with product innovation that isn't explicitly targeting women, or, or nobody knows that it's for women, but it actually is. That's the secret. Well, that's, I think, a much fairer way of presenting options. Mm -hmm. Just a cursory look online today of male-oriented products for women, the most cringy was a set of power tools that were pink. Still? Still. Still. I don't believe it. I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God. I remember talking about this in like 2005. Yeah. And yeah. making fun of it. Did you ever see Ellen's thing about the pink, the Bic pens? There are those the, I mean, too. They're, yep. still, they're still being sold. I don't As know about the Bic her. pens, but there are still pens I mean, pink pens are fine. But. Arts and crafts that are specifically for, for girls and specifically for boys. And that, to me, is almost more dangerous than what originally happened with seatbelts. I have some interesting statistics here. Seatbelts were tested using crash test dummies with sizes and weights representing the average man. Unsurprisingly, women are 40% more likely to be seriously injured than men in car crashes because seatbelts aren't made for their bodies. So, you know, I was thinking about gender during the design process and how that women-centered design could solve for these issues. And I'm wondering if you have any firsthand experience with design that failed because of gender. Do you know of other examples aside from seatbelts? I can think of a category that failed me personally. Yeah, yeah. It, I think that- It doesn't have to be something you've worked on, something right. that you've witnessed. Something that I've witnessed in my personal life is a, a moment in time where I had anxiety that was through the roof and fear that was any, beyond anything I've known before, which is having a newborn baby and products that were designed for baby and mom during that period, I felt didn't get me. Right, they were either very, very cutesy and over the top or just blatantly didn't work. There's a lot of ways to go wrong and the stakes are just so high with a, a little one. Like you take a nap and you, your kid can die of SIDS. Like it is very, very high stakes. And the products that I experimented with, I remember just regularly failing everything from the little monitors that make sure your kid's breathing to onesies that open and close when you're really, really tired and you can't handle 12 snaps in under 10 seconds, I guarantee no one can. Like there's so many ways that, that that moment in time in your life can be better. And I don't know that that level of anxiety was considered in the design of those products. They're, they're surface treatments, right? It's cute, it's light colors and it's raw soft corners. It's for you. Women-centered design is imploring designers, innovators, investors, to drive the market in ways that are cognizant of what women need and to rethink how products are marketed so they acknowledge and respect women. If you can, can you talk about one project that you've worked on 
that's taken this approach and what that process was like. I can share an experience. We worked on a brand that first started out as a baby-centric brand, creating, you know, really innovative, interesting products for babies and toddlers. But then the founder of the brand, who is also a woman, and she, she's also a mother, she recognized that there weren't any good products for women who just gave birth. Okay, and I, I haven't experienced motherhood myself. Therefore, you know, I, I, I had no idea what a woman would go through during pregnancy as well as many months after giving birth. God, there's just so many issues, right? So she set out to create a different product line that address issues around, you know, early motherhood. Yeah, and I thought that was really, really fantastic. Smart. Because, yeah, because... She really tried, they spent so much effort on research and discovery, and she tried everything herself because she was also pregnant herself during that product development stage, right? So she used herself as sort of the test lab rat. So that I thought was a really, really incredible learning experience for me. But what really blew my mind from that, from that project was that it's these life stages that women go through. I think that, you know, if we just look at things just through the very simple female versus male lens, I think that's really too simplistic. And now going back to the woman-centered design idea, right? But I think that women go through different life stages and our needs and challenges are so different from stage to stage. But overall, it's a continuum, right? But we tend not to actually look at women or look at any gender issue through the lens of life stages through the lens of environment issues, right? Not in a kind of sustainability kind of way, but in terms of culture, in terms of societal development. And I think that looking at women's needs or any human being's needs through life stages, I think is a lot more interesting than just looking at it through very simple physiology division. Yeah. I can't speak specifically around product, but I can speak around campaign and a big untapped kind of areas, women's professional sports. When I was at Glossier, we were doing a part launch on Body Hero and it was during COVID. So the, both NFL or NBA and WNBA were both in their respective bubbles. The NBA's had the really fancy, beautiful bubble, like with a ton of great equipment, like probably funded like gazillions of dollars. But the WNBA stayed in, I forget the name of it. It was in like Bumblefuck, Florida somewhere. But what we realized is that there was an opportunity to work with them. They had never had a beauty partner ever. And it was really interesting because our sort of definition of beauty is whatever you make of it. You know, I think that's beauty can be found anywhere. And so it really kind of became this moment for us to really like raise them. They were also using their voices to focus on like political issues. That was when Black Lives Matter was really happening. And there were huge advocates for that, getting in trouble for it. So it was a really amazing moment to put them on a pedestal and sort of give them a, an opportunity to, to speak about beauty and how they connect to beauty. And since then, that sort of opened the doors for them to continue to get endorsement deals from that. So that was quite an interesting experience that I've, that I've dealt with. Eric, I want you to answer I the question. Oh, yeah. okay. And then I want to come back. I have a very specific question for you, Shara, that sure. I think will, will be illuminating. Sure. So you can hit Erica. I'm excited. Should I? Sure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got a couple. I'm going to start with one. Okay. I, I worked for Nissan a few years ago, and they came to Femden, which was a design lab dedicated to female designers at an agency called Smart Design, which you created. Yes, which I built with a few friends. And we were dedicated to 
gender parity at all touch points in the user experience. They came to us and they said, our cars aren't selling well with American women, help. What do we go do? And we did research with American women drivers and we did road trips and spent time in the back seat. And we came back with like rock solid insights about how American women drivers, they care about everybody in the car. It's not about the cockpit, right? Unlike the male drivers that we also interviewed, it's about everyone in the car. They wanna throw control to the radio, to the back seat sometimes, right? It's about everyone. Anyway, there was many insights, but when we went to Tokyo and presented this, it, it kind of landed with a thud, to be honest. And we went to the design studio shortly after our, our big presentation. And the design studio was filled with the most fabulous masculine men I've ever seen. You know, it's Tokyo. They looked so good. And their mood boards were all over every surface. They were everywhere. And the, every image I saw was like masculinity to the extreme. It was like Tron motorcycle. This was a, when Tron came out. You remember the movie? Tron motorcycles everywhere and robots. And it, it was really intense. And I'm like, oh, like this is the why. Like glowing lights and speed lines. And it was all aggression and performance and the design of the seats, the buttons, everything was looked like it was going fast. And it was not welcoming to the American female driver who's just, you know, she doesn't care about that, right? That's not what she's focused on. And so the big aha had nothing to do with what we got paid for. It was just going to the design studio and looking at their desks. And we presented that back to them. And I mean, it, it, it came with mixed reviews because we were kind of criticizing our own people a little bit. But that was truly the unlock is the designers themselves. So this client heard your feedback, which was essentially objective. Yes. yes. Statistically significant, knowing you the way I do. <laughs> yes. And yet they rejected it because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. Right. What and do you do in a case like that? You don't. Flip well, the table and you tell them to go, go, go at themselves. themselves. I mean, it was, they're on a journey. They're learning. This was not, this was, you know, pre-2020. I think things have changed, but it's Japan. It was pre-2020. People weren't asking those questions back then. Pre-pussy hats, it was before anything. And we were the only ones that were stupid enough to, you know, get yelled at in public for it. But we did, and that was fine. But you can't. You can't change people and everybody has their own journey. And when their numbers keep failing, they'll learn. You said you had a few examples. Is there another you want to share with us? I feel like there is. Yeah. I feel like there's a juicy one that you're sharing, <laughs> that you're holding back a little bit. I'll, I'll bring it up again. It's all right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Cher. My question for you is you've spent your career mm -hmm. in marketing cosmetics to women. Yep. Estee Lauder, Glossier, now Flamingo. Yeah. Yet you told me right before we started that you've never worn makeup in your life. I have not. I did once for prom and I felt like I was in drag. <laughs> it was quite a fun night just to, to try it out. So you're living proof that yeah. you can design successfully for a segment of the market that you aren't specifically invested in. I mean, it's also why I got into it. Like I said, growing up and not seeing myself represented in, in beauty advertising, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, this is not what beauty needs to be. It doesn't need to be like your perfect face and you need to be this thin and 
it just, and I never connected with it. And I, you know, I grew up skateboarding and I was like, fuck the man, you know, like this is, it's like coming at it with a different approach. And I really believe that, like I said, the idea that beauty can be whatever you make of it. And it's like the journey and every, like beauty is everywhere. And that's sort of what I try to, to sort of implement in the work that I do. Maybe it's also about designing with empathy, knowing who your end user is and really figuring out the insights. I mean, that's how you're going to make the best work. I mean, I work for Flamingo, which is a women's hair removal brand. I like to push forward the idea that we create products with your body in mind. And so the controversial opinion is, what about you know, non-binary bodies, male bodies? Like It's all about skin and how you remove hair. Everyone with a body removes body hair in some capacity. So I've definitely been in situations where I push that a little bit. It's like, we make the tools to help you sort of feel confident in how you remove hair, which can be a real pain in the ass. I think understanding that emotional side yeah. of product development and brand development is really important. Totally. Right? Like that can, that can be the unlock. It's not functional benefits always, right? Like emotional benefits matter just as much. Building a brand, I will bring in my example. Thinking of a project that we did a few years ago for Cardinal Health, it was design of scrubs. It's largely been trumped by this company called Figs. Have you seen people like wearing the scrubs by that brand, which are awesome and fit all body types and have all, all kinds of great features that make their everyday life experience better. But what was interesting is when we did research in hospitals for these scrubs, this was back when every hospital employee was given scrubs at the hospital that you change from your street clothes into. And because of cost cutting or efficiencies, the hospital would order XL, male XL. And so you would all be wearing the same set of scrubs. And guess what? They're enormous. And when you go into the operating room, you're encouraged to remove your undergarments. And it's also really cold in there for sterility reasons, I think. I don't know. So what that means is you're freezing and you're, you're wearing these huge scrubs leaning over these bodies. And this, this happens, right? And so you're exposing yourself. You're uncomfortable. You're tripping. You're dragging dirt all over the place. This is like a problem. And one of the ideas for the development of this new set of scrubs is focusing on women and not men, because women actually have more complex curvature in their body and more variation in their body. And if you meet the needs of women, you'll in fact meet everybody because a straight body can fit in a roomier shape that, act, that gives you an opportunity to cinch and to cover and with pockets in the right places and features in the venting in the right places for a more demanding body, which is, happens to be in this case, the female body. That was like step one and then figs came around. It was a startup and they made them look really cool and look like, look like athleisure and they're doing a much better job. But I think that's a really great example of how you borrow from the set of consumers that are having the most problem and that are feeling the most ignored and innovate for them. Like, I love what you were saying before about like, how can Flamingo be for anyone who's trying to remove hair? Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. But how do we start to create women-centered design that doesn't fall into the tropes of design that is oriented towards a male gaze or isn't falling into the traps of beauty products to make us 
better than we are. So that that's also something, you know, when I think about women-centered design, I get very worried about it falling back on cliches and tropes that we've been working really hard to disrupt. So especially in the beauty category, Cher, can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's still, even in the more progressive brands out there, still very beautiful, mostly naked women flipping their hair and doing things that, you know, I just don't do. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the reality is that will always be the case. There will always be brands that exist that are going to do that. But there are disruptor brands. I love the word disruptor. Disruptor brands that come along and say, no, that's not how it is. Beauty is what you make of it. Let me show you how. You see a ton of beauty brands that are doing that. It's all about you. It's all about skin first. I think it's also really important for people like us to continue to advocate for that and push and and work hard to make sure that what we see in the world is reflected in the world that we want to see. For me, that's what my personal mission is, continue to doing the work that I'm doing and hopefully influence other people to continue to carry that legacy. But I think it'll always be something that we have to consider. And I don't think there's going to be a world in which we run away from those quote unquote tropes. You know, and like I said, it's a privilege for us to be here talking about that. And we're talking about women exclusively. It's like a blanket. Right. But there's trans women. There's black women like Chinese, women, like disabled. It goes so much further. Like we're not even speaking right. about the niche communities and how that you can get even more sort of micro on that level, which is really fascinating, too. One of the things that we do see when we have a more disruptive, progressive brand that shows bodies that are big, that are disabled, that are non-mainstream conventional, then there's the backlash of these brands catering to people that are unhealthy or that they're not beautiful or that they are showing bad examples to kids. How do we get over that? Can we? I don't see this is like a philosophical question because you look at social media in general, like the, what, what the surgeon general just said, it's a huge mental health epidemic. You know, I read yesterday. I mean, you look on like TikTok or Instagram, you see somebody posting something of their bodies and it's just hundreds and hundreds of comments of just like, ew, gross, disgusting, fat. Lizzo, and it's the most, one of the most gorgeous women on the planet. Yeah. And then the problem is with social media is like you can hide behind an avatar. You don't have to be out. It's like, how do you change the world? And I think it's like raising your kids to not be assholes and trying to sort of like push yourself. We could talk about it for like days, weeks, months, years. I don't have the answer. All I can do and all we can do is sort of like have the conversations, feel confident to have the conversations, not only in panels, but at dinners, you know, anywhere and make it a point to speak up about it. Natasha, in my research, I found an interview that you did on the website Designed by Women. And you stated that over the course of your career, you've observed the link between power and gender inequality firsthand. Mm -hmm. And you go on to say that the more senior your role, the more likely you are to encounter situations where you face barriers attributable to you being a woman. And your response was to learn how to craft a gender neutral approach so that you would be defined by your work, not by your gender or your ethnicity. Can you talk a little bit about how you've gone about doing that? I think that I have developed like a pretty good sort of mechanism. I just don't walk in thinking that I'm a woman. I don't know if it's sort of escapist kind of way of dealing with this, but I just don't think about it. 
until it actually shows up really as a, as a kind of gender issue. But, you know, I work with a lot of young women and many of them are Asian. Okay. They came here to go to school and they're really talented and they stay, you know, and start working, right? I observed that they have this sort of, I think, profound fear in them. They have this sort of very conflicted feeling about themselves. That is, they know that they're talented and they, they want to be promoted because it will bring better salary, better life, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I observed that they're also very fearful about stepping up because when you step up, it means that you actually confront more challenging issues that you don't actually have to deal right now at this stage or at this position right now. So I see this sort of very conflicted sort of feeling, not just in my staff, but also in some of my friends, right? And I think that also when motherhood comes in, which actually adds another enormous complexity. So the question is like, how can we actually cultivate more women into the decision-making tier? I think, again, it goes back to design itself, right? How can we design more women-centered products and services? I think that's probably like more about a kind of point of view, right? That's really missing right now. And I think that the question is always, how can we actually make more women to decision makers? I think that doing that is really the sort of, in my mind, the heart of it. Yeah. I agree with you. Like the more power you get, the worse it gets. Like I remember being maybe 30 and all of a sudden having this platform to talk about design and gender in the design community. It just kind of came to me a bit unexpectedly through the Femden. And I was excited by it. It was like fun and games and exciting. And all of a sudden, the design leaders in my agency, thumbs up. Clients, thumbs up. But the younger staff, the men and the women, didn't like it. I got power before my time. I had a platform and a voice, and I was invited to client pitches and meetings when I was a junior, I was so young, and that power that I had was, in their eyes, unfair, even though I, I used my gender to my advantage, just like the men did. But when I did it, it was seen as inappropriate, and that's what happened to me, and it's happened multiple times, actually, when I speak and take that power in a room and talk about the ways to design for gender, the way we're all talking, that there's tools and methods to do it in the right way, listening to consumers, all the, all that stuff, it can be threatening to people who want power. Well, it could be threatening to anybody that just doesn't want change, want which is it. 90% of yeah. the population, <laughs> right? maybe right. more. Talk about Femden for a minute, because yeah, we sure. touched on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I really believe I've watched you create Femden. Um, I was a big cheerleader of it as well. I think every agency should have a Femden. So talk a little bit about what you did. Yeah, sure. So again, I was young and starting off in the agency world where all of a sudden I'm looking around and not seeing anybody that looked like me. There was women in the office, but they were HR and they were managing the front desk. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Where are the women at the top? And this agency, it was Smart Design. It just happened to be a product design agency. Like the history of product design is very male oriented. Like that's okay. Um, And they're lovely people. They're family to me, you know. But I started talking to my colleagues, also young women. We were like, this sucks. Why are we not talking about 
gender in a way that makes us all feel inspired and, and excited to do right by female consumers because all the briefs that we were getting, it's a lot of consumer goods that we were designing, home goods, kitchen goods, stuff like that. This was like early 2000s. It was always the female consumer, like always. We're targeting women. We're targeting this woman, that woman, another woman. Great, like that's fine. But all of the design teams were stacked full of men. All of the corporate teams, the client teams were stacked full of men. Engineering teams stacked. And so we were like, this is weird. <laughs> like this is, you know, nobody's doing anything wrong by being one gender or another or existing. But let's just talk about it. Can't we get smart? Like post 2020, aren't we all learning new things about race and gender identity? Like that's a learning mindset. Like we, we've all adopted. I make mistakes all the time, but I'm learning and getting better. But I found the pushback I got was, I think, maybe people didn't want the change. And maybe it was a criticism that the design community didn't want to hear. Right? Like that was always the issue that I had is that there was always a little bit of disgruntled <laughs> designer voices that I heard. But again, like clients were begging for it. Like marketing for women has been around since the 50s, 40s. That's old news. That's how marketing began. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I don't think that what Cher is doing with Flamingo could have happened without something like Femden preceding it. And I'm wondering, Cher, if you can talk a little bit about your design approach and marketing approach to, to these products, because they really are quite different. I think what's unique about Flamingo and what I love about it is that we focus on routines. Most people remove body hair. I say people, women, and I don't mean just cis women. We don't do it one way. And so we provide the tools that give you a choice to remove it however you move it, remove it, and whenever you remove it. So whether we don't all just shave some of us wax. So it's just identifying that there are different needs beyond just shave. And so we provide the tools that allow you to do that. And so it's really about routine and, and designing really fucking good tools. We just launched, I feel like I'm plugging it, but I'm not, because I think this is an interesting conversation well, to talk about. So we think about hair removal cream. And my first foray into removing hair was, I think I was 11 or 12. I don't remember. And I started getting hair on my, on my face, on my little mustache. And my mom had an ancient bottle of Nair in her drawer. And so I pulled that out. It must have been crusty. I'm sure it was like expired. But, but I remember, I remember the smell of it. I remember the burn. I remember how terrible it was. And I've never touched that shit ever again in my entire life. And it's never been innovated on. I think that product came out in the late 60s, early 70s. Again, it's like the idea of like women's products that haven't been innovated on because they think it's fine, you know? And so Flamingo, the R&D team's great. We do a lot of um, consumer research. I think that's really important is speaking to women, their needs, their wants. Their, we, you know, we realize with specifically, I think about Nair, smells, smells an issue, touching it's an issue. So we redesigned body hair removal and facial hair removal. You don't have to touch the product. The smell's better. And it's just a better product overall. That's what I really appreciate about Flamingo. That's the space that we can take up in, in the industry because it is a crowded industry, but I don't think it's a necessarily an industry we or a, a world that we shouldn't or can't live in. So Flamingo is born out of Harry's. Harry's is around to disrupt the men's shaving, facial shaving market. And we realized that women were buying Harry's razors and using them for themselves, thinking that men's razors are better quality. And the actuality is within the category, men's razors are just razors for your face. They're not technically men's razors. They're just literally razors for your face, but we call it men, like we call the category men's shave. 
The team set out to create a product, design a product specific for bodies, for women's bodies, because they realized women wanted that, which is why how the razor came to be. And we've been innovating it on, it's not the same design as when it came out five years ago. So we're always innovating and trying to find better ways and better use cases. One quick fact I learned recently is that the handle is actually lightweight and people usually equate weight with like quality, but it's really good for people with arthritis, which so, so you think about that. Those are use cases you don't ever even consider. So I have one last question. You mentioned bathrooms before as women. We are used to waiting in line for public toilets. I was just in the theater this weekend and waited on a line for so long, the second act started before I'd even gone. Whether it's airports, movie theaters, you name it, we know there's going to be a line in the women's room. And there's a reason for this. Architects designed the male and female toilets to occupy the same square meters in a space. But women often need more time and space in the restroom than men do. So do you ever see a solve? Can you envision a solve for the women's restroom debacle? A very good question. For a long time, back in the day, my friends and I used to get these things. They called them pee styles, and it allowed you to pee standing up. We would always use it. I would run out of a club sometimes. I don't know. I would always pop a squatter pee standing up. Sorry, back to that. I always just run into the men's room. <laughs> But I think, honestly, the reality is this is the, the number of toilets. Maybe there's a way to redesign a toilet. I don't think so, not specifically for women, but I think it's just quantity. Yeah, right. just creating more space, creating more comfortable spaces for women to use the, the restroom. Because it's a Borrow that square feet. Right? Yeah. I mean, think about that kind of a solve. Think about how that would just change so much about our public experiences. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to the audience for joining us today on this special edition of NYC by Designs the Mic. Thank you to our guests, Cher Russo, Natasha Jen, Erica Eden, for their generosity in sharing their experience and their ideas. Thank you to Salem Gallery for sharing this space with us and to Flamingo for being our partner and supporting this episode. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.